Welcome to the last episode of the year for Kentucky History and Haunts. I am your host, Jesse Bartholomew. Let me tell you how I arrived at the decision to do an episode on the Ohio River. Not, I'm not literally on the Ohio River. I mean about the Ohio River. Oh, off to a great start. One of my favorite podcasts of all time is called Ologies. It's hosted by Allie Ward, who is one of the most charming human beings on the planet. And she interviews specialists in any field imaginable from squirrels to sleep, molecular biology to gar. Yes, gar, those awful serpent-like fish that hang out in the river. So before they completely steal the show, I just wanted to plug Ologies and make sure you all give it a listen if you haven't already. Even the topics that she covers that you're like, I don't care about this at all, they end up fascinating. You get completely hooked. And yes, her episode on Gar led me here to an episode about the Ohio River, which is a very large topic. I'm going to talk a bit about the body of water itself, how big it is, the geography, but I wanted to get specific about stories relating to the Ohio River in our part of it, not so much up in Pittsburgh or over in Illinois. So I asked my friends and the podcast Facebook group, Kentucky History and Haunts and More, if they had anything they would like to hear on this episode, and boy did you all deliver. I got so many suggestions on things to talk about, so we're going to have to revisit this topic over time. I cannot fit it all into one episode, and hang in there because I'll admit This episode just got away from me. It's all over the place. I got so excited about all these different things. So I hope it goes okay. We'll see. Now, I went to high school in Oldham County and the river was just a few minutes drive from my neighborhood and most of my friends lived in neighborhoods right on the river. So I spent a lot of my high school days hanging out on the river, swimming in it, floating on it. Uh, I lost my favorite pair of sweatpants in it one time when I jumped in the water and with my clothes on and they fell off. I was wearing a bathing suit underneath, but I love those sweatpants. Um, Also, my dad lives further north, almost like up on the Oldham Trimble line in a small river town in his little hermit hut. And so with him, I spent a lot of time kayaking and paddle boarding a little further up north on the Ohio. And he does a lot of fishing in the little creeks off his friend's properties. And I get to hear about his fishing stories. Although the last like three times he went out, he said he didn't catch anything. And honestly, sometimes I think he just goes out there to listen to his radio, like listen to football and just be with nature, which who can blame him? That sounds great. Um, Anyway, I'm pretty familiar with our little slice of the Ohio River. So familiar that I have seen Gar. It's been a long time, but oh, I've seen them. They're terrible. Luckily, we don't have alligator Gar in the river anymore. Um, So the ones that we see are smaller, they're uh, long-nosed gar, and they're going to be our finale, so you have to stick around for the whole episode to hear gar facts at the end. Enticing, I know. Welcome to episode 138, The Ohio River. There is one part of this episode that may not be suitable for kids, but it's quick, and I will give a warning beforehand so you can skip 30 seconds or so. Here I am thinking the Ohio River is old. That's not the case at all. According to NewWorldEncyclopedia.org, the Ohio River is young. When I say young, I mean it started forming on a piecemeal basis around 2.5 to 3 million years ago. 
That sounds old, right? But it's not. The biggest river in the U.S., the Missouri, was formed over 30 million years ago, and the Mississippi, friend of the Ohio, 80 million years old. So relatively speaking, the Ohio River is a baby. And I may or may not have run all over my office sharing these fun facts with anyone who would listen. <laughs> I'm that coworker. So it's formation. There were ice ages, okay? And they dammed portions of north flowing rivers which became consumed by glaciers and lakes. And the upper part of the Ohio River formed when one of these glacier lakes overflowed into a south flowing tributary. And it carved through some hills and connected what used to be the Steubenville and Marietta rivers. Everything flooded more and more with each ice age. And eventually you just had this one big body of water. Now, as for the middle Ohio River, it formed very similarly. A north flowing river was temporarily dammed southwest of present day Louisville, creating a large lake until the dam burst. A new route was carved to the Mississippi River and eventually the upper and middle sections came together to form what is the modern day Ohio River. As we know it today, the Ohio River is 981 miles long. It starts at the confluence of the Allegheny and the Monongahela Rivers in Pittsburgh. It ends in Cairo, where it flows into the Mississippi. That old guy. The Ohio carries the largest volume of water of any of the Mississippi tributaries. If humans hadn't gotten involved, the Ohio would naturally be a fairly shallow river. But we built dams, 20 of them. They're managed by the Army Corps of Engineers, and they've changed the flow of the river. They've made it deeper, but they've also made it muddier, which is bad for bottom dwellers. And they have to dredge the river, which disrupts wildlife and increases turbidity. According to most sources, the dams were never to manage flooding at all. They're purely for navigation. They had to make some spots deeper so vessels could get through. This part alone could have its own episode. It's fascinating. If you like it, you might enjoy some light reading titled The History of Large Federal Dams, Planning, Design, and Construction, courtesy of the U.S. Department of the Interior. Just kidding about light reading. It's over 600 pages. Before all the dams, there were places in the river that boats simply could not navigate. People with horse-drawn carriages could get across. It was that shallow. So back in the earlier 1800s, before they started building anything, boats had to wait for two times a year. You could cross during the fall rise, which would be in late October or November, or the spring rise between February and April. Anything else was a gamble. But after the Civil War, the U.S. was entering this industrial revolution, they needed to move a ton of coal, and they realized that they could do that by making the river deeper. The first complete lock and dam project by the Army Corps of Engineers on the Ohio River was at Davis Island, just below Pittsburgh. It opened in 1885 and was very effective. Everything they built in the early 1900s to make the river more navigable worked great in that time period. 
but with the modernization of vessels and just the increase in traffic, the wicket dams and small locks became obsolete. So they were replaced with larger ones made of concrete and steel, usually like around the 1950s. So the new ones still exist for navigation purposes, not really flood control. I can almost guarantee I'll be back talking about engineering projects on the Ohio at a later date, but I do want to move on for now. So I skipped ahead in chronology a little bit, going from millions of years ago to building dams. I want to back up to in between that. I like to think about how amazing the river must have been back when its only company was the animals and the Native Americans living in the region. I mean, just think about how lush it must have been. The word Ohio comes from the Seneca language and it translates to good river, great river, or large creek. Native Americans used the Ohio as a major trading and transportation route for thousands of years. Several tribes formed along its valley in prehistoric and historic times. I had to really do my homework here because Native American history is something I've always wanted to study, and I'm ashamed I, I don't know more about it. But I, I tried to do my homework here, and I, when I have more time, I will definitely talk more about the tribes that used to live in our area. So here's the deal for now. The Mississippian culture is the name for the Native American civilization that lived in the Mideastern, Eastern, and Southeastern U.S. from around eight or 900 to about 1600. And these groups were really good at making these large earthwork mounds. If you don't know what these are, I want to put a little warning here that we are getting into conspiracy territory. There are some out there stories about who actually built these things, but we're staying away from that flim flam today and sticking to the facts based on archaeology and anthropological studies So over the centuries, we know that these mounds were built by native tribes for various purposes, but this particular group along the Kentucky section of the Ohio River Valley built them mainly for ceremonial and burial purposes. Quote, these burial and ceremonial structures were typically flat-topped pyramids or platform mounds, flat-topped or rounded cones, elongated ridges, and sometimes a variety of other forms. They were generally built as part of complex villages. Before I forget, I asked my mom what she knew about the mounds. Uh, I don't think she's ever listened to my show before, but I'm going to make her listen to this episode. So, hey, mom. Uh, Background on her, she was born in Louisville in 1960, so she remembers the tornado of 74, she remembers the 78 blizzard, and her parents had a farm in Turnbull County, and her stories about the farm are amazing, but there's kind of a sad ending. Um, Both my mom's parents died in the late 70s. She had the farm and managed to hang on to it until LG&E took the farm, quote, for the betterment of society in the late 80s. Um, So she actually had specialists come in, uh, I think she said from UofL, to determine whether that land had ever been a native settlement at some point so that she could maybe keep it and preserve it instead of having giant industrial buildings built on it. Unfortunately, 
they did not find evidence of any type of actual settlement on that land. So that's how she lost uh, their family farm on the river. And um, this story even gets a little more personal because it turns out my first childhood home backed up to a Native American earth mound that was probably a burial ground. Um, My dad was a master carpenter. Uh, I mean, I wish I could give you the address of these. He built two houses uh, on that street and they're, they're stunning, um, but people still live, live in them, and that would be creepy. So um, he built two houses in this place in Oldham County called Tartan's Landing Marina. It's north of Louisville, past Prospect, past uh, Rose Island Road, and then you get to North Buckeye Lane. And if you drive back that road, you end up at the marina, which is at the end of Taylor Creek, which is just this little creek that feeds into the Ohio It still is a rural area, but it was even more so 30 years ago. So background on my dad, um, he's super passionate about all of his interests. Like he loves football and he loves baseball, loves cars and racing, fishing, nature. He's definitely a man's man. But more than all of these things, he loves construction and he loves like engineering and just tinkering and putting things together and making things work. He didn't go to engineering school. That's not his background, but he would have been excellent in that field. And he's an excellent builder. And he knows a lot about building materials and things like soil, um, sand, what you build the foundation on. And uh, I say sand because when he, when they went to dig the foundation for the house out there um, on the river, They had to build it pretty deep because there was so much sand. They had to expand the footers. And he said he saw what looked like ash in the layers of soil. There were these black lines where maybe there had been fires. And then they found some artifacts. And the really interesting thing is that apparently some indigenous people still went out to visit that area. And when they saw where they were digging for our house, They actually called UofL's archaeology department to come out and check out the site. Dad said that uh, UofL took a couple things from the site and ultimately decided they weren't digging on top of any known burial ground so they could proceed. But the mounds right by that area were formed in the shape of a turtle. And our house was on the middle of one side of the turtle. And it was believed that there was someone, someone important, buried in the neck of the turtle. And every now and again, dad would notice a group out there chanting and stacking rocks on the neck of the turtle. I did put in a call to the UofL anthropology department, but it's the weekend before Christmas, so I don't expect to hear anything back right away. But if they do call me back and I can figure out more information about this, I'll give you guys an update. This brings us to one of today's main stories, and it's about a Welsh prince. Give me a minute and it'll all make sense. And I'm going to tread lightly here because this is pretty controversial too, with headlines of related articles titled, The Racist Origins of a Myth a Welsh Prince Beat Columbus to America. I have no opinion on this other than I'm going to stick with what the archaeologists who study all this for a living say. 
Now we know that Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, but there's this more obscure story about a Welsh prince who beat the Spanish to the punch by hundreds of years. There was this king in the 1100s. I'm going to butcher all of these names. Um, maybe Owain Gwynedd. And he had somewhere between 13 and 19 children. Six of them were legitimate. The rest were not. But their rules were relatively chill about these matters. So although these children were born out of wedlock, they were all legally recognized under Welsh tradition. So it wasn't like in some places where they would have been like banished or hidden from the public. He just had a ton of kids. So when this king died in 1169, settling the estate was complicated. It became really contentious. And one of the king's illegitimate children was Madoc, or sometimes Madog with a G. And he saw all these brothers fighting for power, and he thought, you know, I think I'm good. I'm going to pass on all that. So instead, he and one of his brothers, Ryrid, hopped in a couple of ships and took off from the North Wales coast, and they're believed to have landed sometime later on around what's now the Alabama coast. And they were thrilled. Big fans of North America. So after his initial visit, Madoc left some of his crew and said, you guys, you know, start building some settlements. And then he went back to Wales to tell his friends, I found this great place. You've got to come check it out. So the next year, they turned around and sailed again with a new group of travelers, and they stayed. They loved it. They made it their home. I got a lot of this story from historicuk.com. But please understand, there are different versions of events, and I just tried to kind of put together the most common details from all the sources. So, Madoc and his crew were believed to have traveled up the Alabama River, which if you look at a map, it starts near where he's believed to have landed at Mobile Bay, and then it cuts diagonally across the state of Alabama up to its northeastern corner and into Georgia. And basically, along that river, are places that are named after Madoc. The theory is that he and his men began settling with native tribes. So instead of like setting up separate communities and typically like being rivals, they got along well. They started living together. Uh, the native tribes were said to have learned Welsh and they would eventually start coupling up and having children with the women in these tribes. And the legend goes that at some point, our Prince Madoc made his way to the Ohio River Valley to a place called Devil's Backbone. If anyone has been to the location in what's now Charlestown State Park in Indiana, where the Rose Island Amusement Park used to be, that's where this Devil's Backbone is located. So about 14 miles up the river from downtown Louisville. And it's thought to have formed by glaciation Quote, where a combination of ice sheets advance, meltwater flows, and a diversion of the Ohio River left an isolated bedrock ridge remaining between two valleys. So it's really this rock peninsula. And according to local legend, these Welsh explorers, including Madoc himself, built a stone fortress on this peninsula and made it one of their settlements. 
and I do have a nice little diagram of it that I'll post on social media. At some point, I think in the early 1800s, and we'll get to this in a minute, the fortress was disassembled, and then of course, Rose Island Park was built there. That area became so popular during the 1920s, but people stopped spending money at amusement parks during the Great Depression, and then they were hit with the 37 flood that destroyed so much, and they just never recovered. And if you haven't gone over to see the what remains of the Rose Island Amusement Park, it's so cool. I highly recommend checking it out. Um, there are lots of rumors it's haunted. That area will get its own episode at some point. Um, it had a hotel, I think, roller coasters. There was a bear named Teddy Roosevelt, and you could get there by steamboat. One of the boats that ferried people to and from the park was called the Idlewild, which is the boat we now know as the Belle of Louisville. But that's where these Welsh explorers were thought to have settled, on this little peninsula in what's now Charlestown, along with their Native American companions. And these stone forts they built, similar, similar forts were found along the shores of the Alabama River. So that's why they kind of think it's the same group. And apparently later, when asked about them, some local Cherokee tribes were like, yeah, some white guys built them. And according to historicuk.com, quote, these structures have been dated to several hundred years before the arrival of Columbus and are said to be of a similar design to Dolwadellen Castle in North Wales. To give you a better idea of what this structure looked like at Devil's Backbone, quote, the earliest survey of the area, done in 1873 by state geologist E.T. Cox and his assistant William Borden, found a prehistoric fortification on the hilltop, a man-made limestone wall, 150 feet long and 75 feet high in some places, stood along the front and one side of the hill where the cliffs could be scaled. This huge stone wall does not exist anymore because the early settlers who came next deconstructed the wall and used the stones to build foundations for buildings. And there's another thing I'll tell you in a minute. But there were also earth mounds found in this Devil's Backbone area, also believed to be built by these Welsh Indians. Other early explorers are alleged to have run into these tribes who appeared to have Welsh influences. They lived in little villages that were set up like European towns with streets and squares. And this article says the tribe claimed to have Welsh ancestry and, quote, spoke a language remarkably similar to it. The legend of Madoc is mentioned in a poem written by a Welsh poet whose name I'm not even going to attempt from the 1400s. And other um, authors kind of mimicked the story and it took off in the Elizabethan era because it was a great tool for claiming that the British were there first, right? It was mentioned in some treatise that was shown to Queen Elizabeth, and she used it to be like, hey, Spain, check it out. We really were there first. Hundreds of years before Christopher Columbus. This was like the 1580s. And the more spotlight this legend got, the more people wrote about it, but in a fictional, speculative way. 
people would add things or remove parts of the story. Um, the account started saying there were 11 ships that made the second voyage with over 100 passengers. But the truth is, quote, no archaeological, linguistic, or other evidence of such a man or his voyages has been found in the new or old world. And if you really start looking at this closely, the evidence is just not there. Several archaeologists have studied this and agree it just cannot be proven. There are, this is a long story. There are plenty of details that I didn't include, but um, you can get the book. There is a book about it. It's called The Legend of Prince Madoc and the White Indians. And I think it's kind of rare. There aren't that many online that I could see. And you really can't find a copy for under like $45. But if you do want to know more, it's out there. One other thing that was brought to my attention by the person who recommended this story. He mentioned that when the Big Four Bridge was being built downtown, the company in charge of construction used the rock from that fortification at Devil's Backbone to build the piers. And this, to me, just adds to that mystical element of all of this, because if you know anything about the Big Four Bridge, you know that it had its share of problems. The idea for the bridge was proposed in 1885. Construction began in 1888, and it became the only Louisville bridge to ever have serious accidents occur during its construction. Coincidence? Perhaps they should have left those stones where they were. 37 people died during the construction of the Big Four Bridge. In 1890, 14 people drowned. A few months later, six more died. And on December 15, 1893, the wind caused a construction crane to become dislodged, causing the false work support of a truss to be damaged, and the truss fell into the water with 41 workers on it. 20 survived, 21 died. It was one of the biggest bridge disasters in U.S. history, and it could have been worse. The falling truss just barely missed a ferry full of people crossing the river. Finally, by 1895, it was done, but Louisville and Jeffersonville were so broke from all the accidents, they had to sell the bridge to the Cleveland, Cincinnati, Chicago, and St. Louis Railway, also known as the Big Four Railroad. So that's how it got its name, if you're curious. And it was a railroad bridge. So once it got up and running, it actually cleared up traffic on the river quite a bit. In 1918, two interurbans collided on the bridge in a blinding snowstorm, killing three passengers and injuring 20 more. And being who I am, I had to look up the news archives from the following day, and I'll post pictures from the wreck on social media. An article from the next day read, quote, touching scenes in hospital corridors, crowded with dying and injured. Soldiers rushed from Jeffersonville to identify victims, Car packed to suffocation when crash came, says Survivor. By the late 1920s, they realized they needed to beef up the bridge to handle the increase in weight. So they built the new Big Four Bridge on the piers of the old bridge, which was, quote, a novel building process. It sped up the process, but it also reinforced it really well while it was being built. And it went on as a rail bridge for decades, the last train crossed the bridge in 1968. It sat there 
not serving any kind of purpose for decades until it was finally converted into the walking bridge in 2014. It's also caught on fire several times, twice in the 70s, once in the 80s, uh, and then as recently as 2008. Again, coincidence or Welsh Indian curse for removing the stones. Okay, moving on from that entire story, back to the Ohio. I'm going to tell a few shorter stories, and then I'm going to tell you those fun facts about Gar. I know you're on the edge of your seat. Now, at the top, I mentioned that our part of the Ohio River used to freeze. I think I mentioned that. Maybe I didn't. It still could, technically, but it hasn't frozen in Kentucky in quite some time. And like I said, my mom remembers when it froze in 1978 during the blizzard. She said her parents wouldn't let them step. They really wanted to, you know, go out and step on it, and their parents wouldn't let them. But this blizzard was kind of the perfect storm. It was... It started as rain and then it froze and it was so windy that it was piling up on stuff like people's cars. Nobody could get anywhere or do anything. People slept in their cars overnight on the interstates. Um, There was terrible flooding in more rural areas and the river froze. A towboat operator and another man in Paducah died on the river the day of the blizzard when the high wind caused their vessel to be swamped. And there were articles like this one, Ice Jam Breaks Up on Ohio. Quote, families on both sides evacuated. A wall of ice that had built up across the Ohio River about halfway between Louisville and Cincinnati broke yesterday afternoon, causing the evacuation of 130 families in two cities in Kentucky and one in Indiana. Tons of ice and water were freed and began moving downriver at about five miles per hour, according to Coast Guard estimates. The ice and water threatened structural damage at Markland Locks and Dam, 16 miles below the buildup. Lock gates were opened to allow free passage of water and ice. There was a report of a 20-foot wall of water moving downriver from the ice. That report, which turned out to be false, caused the evacuation of 130 families from Main Street in Carrollton, Kentucky, and from nearby Prestonburg. The evacuation was carried out by National Guard and local police. I pulled some photos of the damage done on the river by this blizzard, and I'll post them on social. But the other thing about this was that in the following days, The weather was cold and cloudy, so nothing was melting. Everything just stayed frozen. One of the photos I'll post is of all these barges just slammed up against a dam in the river. It's wild to see. There were 18 stuck at one, a dozen stuck at another. Uh, When I was asking my mom if she remembered this, I pulled up some newsreels from when it happened And I was like, oh, mom, do you recognize the weatherman? It was Bud something. And she absolutely did. Used to watch him every day. And if you get a minute, you should watch some of those weather reels from the 78 blizzard. The outfits are so good. I love the turtleneck and blazer combo. Men should really think about bringing that back. Well, that's neither here nor there. Uh, Three days after the blizzard, Parts of the river were still frozen or completely shut down. They were still trying to get these barges away from the dams. It was a tough, tough winter. Quote, there were 28 days with negative zero degree temperatures. 
and a recorded temperature of negative 25 degrees, according to the National Weather Service. It's believed the ice on the Ohio River was 12 inches thick. The river also froze in 1918, and the earliest freeze that we know about was in 1856, just a few years before the Civil War broke out. Which brings us to the story of Margaret Garner. This part of the episode may not be suitable for some younger listeners. If you want to skip the whole story, you can just fast forward a couple minutes now. Or I'll also give another warning here in a minute when the really tough to listen to part comes up. And then you can just skip like 30 seconds. Your call. Margaret Garner was a house slave on a plantation in Boone County, Kentucky for the Gaines family. It was the Maplewood Plantation, and there's speculation that since she was light-skinned, she was probably the daughter of the plantation owner, John Pollard Gaines. If you all are thinking this story sounds familiar, it might be because John Pollard's dad, Abner, owned the Gaines Tavern, which is haunted, which I covered in episode 96, and... While I'm pretty sure I mentioned Margaret's story in that episode, it was like 40 episodes ago, and I want to go into more detail now. And the Ohio River is kind of the hero in this story. John Pollard Gaines was a heavy hitter in 19th century politics. He was governor of the Oregon Territory for a while. He was a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. He was very wealthy. And in 1849, he sold his plantation to his younger brother, Archibald. That same year, Margaret married an enslaved man on the plantation named Robert Garner. Margaret gave birth to her first child in 1850. But here's the thing. Three of their younger children were very light-skinned. Each of them were born five to seven months after Archibald Gaines' wife had a baby. So it's very likely that Margaret's children were Archibald's and just in case the kids are listening, I'll just say not by her choice, which was common with plantation owners and their house slaves or any slaves. We also know from witnesses that Margaret was abused because she had the scars on her face to prove it. On January 28, 1856, the Garner family escaped from Maplewood Plantation with some other slaves also from the plantation. Margaret was pregnant at the time. They had stolen some horses and a gun, and this winter was the coldest in 60 years, and the Ohio River was frozen. It was so frozen, they were able to cross it in a place where normally they would never have been able to. This made it so much easier to get into Ohio, which was a free state. I can't imagine the fear this family must have felt escaping this violent home in the freezing cold, crossing a frozen river that, you don't know, it could crack at any time. That's desperation. They made it safely across to an area west of Covington called Storrs Township and to the home of Margaret's uncle, Joe Kite, who was a former slave. The other people in the group who escaped with the Garners eventually made it via the Underground Railroad safely to Canada. This is the part where if little ones are listening, you might want to skip ahead. There is some violence coming up. Slave catchers and U.S. Marshals caught up to the Garner family, 
They were barricaded in Joe Kite's house. I don't know exactly how they found out where they were, but maybe they just put two and two together that Margaret's uncle lived in the area. The house was surrounded. At that point, there was no way out. And again, in an act of complete desperation, Margaret Garner killed her two-year-old daughter and attempted to kill the rest of her children and herself. That's how badly she didn't want her family, her daughters, to have to go back to the Gaines house. Whatever happened at that plantation, it's safe to assume that death seemed like a better option. Margaret was returned to Archibald Gaines, and he didn't want her tried for murder, so he kept moving the Garners from city to city to avoid having them prosecuted. He eventually put Margaret and her husband on a boat headed for his brother's plantation in Arkansas. It collided with another boat. They were either thrown overboard or jumped, there's speculation of both, and their baby drowned. Margaret and Robert survived. They did end up at Archibald's brother's plantation, but only briefly before being sent to a family friend of the Gaines in New Orleans. Later records tell us about the final years of the Garners' lives. In 1857, they were sold to a judge for plantation labor in Mississippi. Margaret died of typhoid fever in 1858. Robert said before she died, she told him to, quote, never marry again in slavery, but to live in hope of freedom. The story of Margaret Garner inspired Toni Morrison to write the book Beloved, which went on to win the Pulitzer Prize which I can't believe I haven't read. It's on order right now. So I included this story because friend of the show, Grace, suggested it. And I guess the part that kind of gets lost in the details, but is actually pretty neat, is that nine slaves from Kentucky did make it safely to freedom in Canada simply because the Ohio River was frozen over in 1856, and they were able to cross into Ohio in an efficient way they normally wouldn't have been able to. It's just that once they got across, they were a little bit luckier than the Garners. I'll read one more thing related to this. It's an article from the Liberator newspaper out of Boston, printed March 7th, 1856. Underground Railroad. Since the unconstitutional freezing up of the Ohio River, referred to some days since by the Cincinnati Gazette, the Underground Railroad has been doing an uncommonly thriving business. In the course of our newspaperial pickings and stealings, we found the following items, all in one issue of the Daily Columbian of Cincinnati. More fugitives. We are not members of the Underground Railroad Company, but during our attendance at the fugitive slave trials, we hear something of their business. Besides a party of six Negroes mentioned in another column, another party of three reached Covington on Monday night and approached the river. On coming inside of it, they retreated in fear on account of the number on it. They came up with a horse and sleigh standing hitched at a residence, jumped into it, rushed off at lightning speed for the other side of Jordan, left the sleigh standing by the riverside, made for the invisible depot, and were soon sliding safely along the Underground Railroad. Number two, we learn that six more slaves from Kentucky reached the depot of the Underground Railroad in this city on Monday night. They were sent on to the terminus in Canada. Number three, 
The Maysville Eagle says that a party of five slaves in Macon County borrowed their master's horses and sleighs for a ride three or four days ago and crossing the river upon the ice affected their escape. Also that a party of four were stopped and arrested at a toll gate near Flemingsburg who were also bound for Canada. The above make 14. The party involved in the fearful tragedy at Cincinnati number seven, besides which four more of the slaves of Mr. Gaines, the owner of Margaret Garner, have made successful flight while he has been attending the trial of the fugitives in our sister city. An act of Congress against the freezing of the Ohio must be appended to the Fugitive Slave Act. Okay, even though there are some success stories in there, uh, that's kind of a sad thing to leave you guys with. So we're going to now get to the Ohio River Wildlife Fun Facts. I know it's what you guys have been waiting for. First, let's talk alligators. What's up with them? Are they in the river? Are they not? This is kind of a hot topic. I, I, people love to argue over whether or not there are alligators in the river. The answer's kind of murky. Yes and no. There have been alligators in the river, but it's not natural. It's not a natural occurrence. American alligators do not do well in the cold. They stop feeding in temperatures below 70 degrees. They would not make it in the winter in Kentucky. So when you hear there's been an alligator sighting on the Ohio, it's almost always because, not, not almost always, it's always because a human being put it there. People think it's cute to get an exotic pet. They start out as these sweet little baby alligators that seem manageable. Then they keep growing. Then the owners get nervous and they dump them in or near the river. People do this with mini pigs now. Um, guys, that, that pig, it's going to get big. I can tell you from firsthand experience. Um, or sometimes an alligator escapes. That happens. Um, and typically the owner won't report it because in a lot of states it's illegal to have a pet alligator. The most recent confirmed gator sighting was in 2015. It was a younger gator, not yet full grown. Somebody saw it on the banks of the river and some good folks from the Cincinnati Zoo were able to capture it without harming it and transport it safely to the zoo. Unfortunately, in a lot of cases, the gator is not so lucky. But this has happened several times over the years, and the stories are sometimes pretty charming. So I'm going to tell you just a few of them. This first one, oh, I live for stories like this. In 1966, the Lexington Herald leader reported that an alligator had been hauled out of the river, but that people shouldn't be afraid because it was in a cage and appeared to be some kind of stunt. This is... <laughs> It was on a float, okay? There was an alligator on a float in a cage on the river. Yes, I know that's abusive. I don't like it either, but it was about four feet long and it was wearing a sign that said, quote, barred in Boston, barred in Cincinnati, kicked out of Middletown, next stop, blank. This was a statement about a dance called the alligator, which was being banned in towns all over the region. For being too seductive. That seemed a bit extreme to me, so of course I had to dig deeper. And apparently, 
the alligator dance paved the way for modern day twerking. As I'm researching this, I'm cracking up because I know that at least one older listener out there is going to know what the alligator dance is without having to look it up. And I'm sure you all are laughing too. I hope you are. Now, it appears there are two versions of the alligator dance. The PG version that is still done like at weddings sometimes. And what I'm guessing is more like the original version that folks in the 60s wanted outlawed. And to see that one, there is a single video I could find on the internet. And if you Google Alligator Dance 1960s, it's the first hit. It's just titled Alligator Dance, uploaded by Crappy Lander, like the fish. So if you really need to know what dance could have possibly made someone put a live alligator in a cage on a float on the Ohio River in 1966, it's out there for you to see. Um, maybe not the kids, although it's not that bad. In 1934, the Harlan Daily Enterprise reported a 28-year-old named Michael Gallagher caught a 14-inch alligator in the river. In 1928, a group of boys said a 9-inch alligator, so a baby, crawled out of the river near Covington and right up to their feet. So one of the boys, John Audie Jr., took the gator home, put it in a tub of water, and was inviting anyone who was skeptical to just come on over and see it. I'm sure his parents were thrilled. A Courier Journal article from June 1924 read, Alligator Captured on Ohio Riverbank. Quote, the capture of an alligator on the riverbank at the foot of Meigs Avenue, Jeffersonville, by James McDonough, 16 years old, 223 Mechanic Street, has caused a panic among those who go to the beach to swim. The boy was fishing Sunday and noticed the alligator, more than a foot long, crawling on the sand. It showed fight when McDonough went to it. He went home, obtained his shotgun, and fired at the alligator, wounding it slightly. He then carried it home and placed it in the tub. Many who have been going to the beach yesterday said they would go no more. These teenagers just bringing home alligators and putting them in the family bathtub. <laughs> in 1923, a five-footer was spotted in Covington, apparently three weeks after another man had unsuccessfully engaged with it and tried to capture it, according to the Kentucky Post. Now, I needed to know what unsuccessfully engaged with it meant, so I looked up the earlier article this guy tried to shoot at this alleged alligator, missed, and apparently just ran into the water and tried to wrestle it. Um, didn't work, but he survived, and so did the alligator, which is interesting. An article in the Owensboro Messenger from 1907 read, 16-foot alligator seen in the Ohio River. Quote, Edward Shackelford, Benjamin and Frank Bauer, and Edward Hayes, all reputable farmers of Posey County, Indiana, claim that when in a skiff in the lower Ohio near Uniontown, Kentucky today, an alligator about 16 feet long and as large as an ordinary horse attacked them and the boat was almost swamped. I would love to know what really happened to those guys on that boat that day because they did not get attacked by a 16-foot alligator. 1907, who knows what those guys were up to. There are several more reports of gator sightings in the entire Ohio River through the centuries, but I did limit my search to just 
the Kentucky and Ohio areas. Another creature we should talk about is the catfish. I personally prefer the catfish to the gar as far as river monsters go. Also, my dad used to call me catfish when I was really little. It was one of my nicknames. And it was a lot cuter before it became the term for somebody who pretends to be somebody else on the internet. Anyway, there are reports as far back as 1849 of some pretty giant catfish. Someone caught one that was 158 pounds and 70 inches long. That's a big fish. In 2009, fishermen caught a 96-pound blue catfish near Cincinnati. You can see pictures of these modern ones. One caught in 2018 was 109 pounds, and I think that's the record for modern times in the Ohio River. There are three types of catfish in the Ohio. You have the channel, the blue, and the flathead. The blue catfish are the ones that typically get bigger. The channel catfish only get up to about 15 pounds. Um, they're typically olive brown with some blue on their sides and silver bottoms. They might have little black spots on them. I feel like if you Google an image, like a illustration of a catfish, that one's kind of like the quintessential catfish. Um, but these blue ones, they have become invasive in a lot of areas. They're silvery blue with white bellies. They don't have scales, they have smooth skin. And they're the ones that can get up to like five feet and 100 pounds, they're big guys. And then the flathead, as you could guess, has a flatter head and the lower jaw projects out further than the upper jaw. They're more yellowish with brown, olive green, or black on the sides. You might see white triangular patches on their tails. And they're the more solitary catfish. They're omnivores and they feed at night. And they'll eat other living fish, which typically the other two will not. They'll also visit the surface more than the other two, and they'll hang out in more shallow water, whereas the others are true bottom feeders. Now, there is a legend that there is a Volkswagen-sized catfish lurking in the depths of the Ohio River. This I cannot confirm, but if anyone out there can, if you've got some pictures that you haven't shared with the world, but you feel like you might be ready, please email them to kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com. If that giant car-sized catfish is out there, we need to know. And that brings us to the grand finale, the most ominous and horrible of all river creatures, the gar. We'll start with the slightly less terrible long-nosed gar, Lepisosteus osseus. I love it when the Latin name rhymes. This thing has maybe been around for 100 million years. It is primitive. They're little dinosaurs. They're usually olive greenish. They have torpedo-shaped bodies, armored with ganoid scales, and they have those elongated jaws with needle-like snouts nearly three times the length of their head topped off with a row of sharp little teeth. They are goofy looking creatures. And the fact that caught my attention on ologies that will haunt me forever is that they can breathe both air and water. That's why you might catch them up near your toes at the surface, just lurking, hanging out, being slimy. 
They mostly eat at night. They eat small fish, insects, and small crustaceans. Native Americans and early settlers used to eat gar. Now we've come to our senses and almost everywhere they exist, they are only considered a sport fish, not a delicacy, as they used to be in some places. Gars hunt by mimicking sticks. That's why they are the way they are. They are shaped like little harmless branches just floating in the water. But then before you know what hits you, chomp, lunch is served. They live 15 to 20 years, which feels like a long time. The oldest one on record was 39. Now, the largest Ohio specimen was 25 pounds and four foot five inches long. I looked it up. This giant long nose gar was caught by Mrs. Flora Irvin in the mid 1960s. Gar have a clutch size of 30,000. A clutch size is how many eggs they lay. Komodo dragons lay about 20. A gar, 30,000. Gar eggs are maybe one of the most interesting things about them. They are coated with a toxic adhesive. And I thought, hmm, maybe that's a common fish thing. No, it's not. There are very few other species who do this, but this, this um, toxic substance, it's toxic to birds, mice, crayfish, and even humans. So no gar eggs for you. The only thing worse than a primitive, sharp-toothed, lanky, air-breathing, toxic egg-laying fish is a bigger version of said fish. Enter the alligator gar. You'll be happy to know an alligator gar has not been spotted in Kentucky since 1977 when someone saw a dead one floating in Kentucky Lake. They are on the endangered list by the Kentucky State Nature Preserve Commission and are listed as, quote, species of great conservation needed. Hmm, hard for me to swallow. There are groups actively trying to reintegrate the species into Kentucky waterways. I am not on board, but if it's for the greater good of the ecosystem, I guess I need to deal with it. So what do I have against alligator gar? Once I post a picture, you will understand. The fact that they can be over nine feet long and 300 pounds. In fact, the largest on record was nine foot eight inches long. Um, I think that the ones that were typically in Kentucky waters and in the Ohio River probably never got that big, at least not in any recent times. That one was in Florida, but still they're big and they have these bug eyes that kind of protrude and just look like they're staring into your soul. Now, the Kentucky Fish and Wildlife website does provide a list of all the counties where they are reintroducing gar. And those are counties I will not be visiting for any type of water recreation. They also have a nine minute video about how these eggs came up from Mississippi and this whole process of reintegrate. It's really cool. It is, it's really cool, but I still hate it. I am sitting here trying to come to terms with the fact that they play an important role in our ecosystem by regulating other fish species. Can't ignore the facts. Alligator gar. Atractosteus spatula, that's the Latin name, spatula, have shorter snouts than their smaller relatives, but they have even more needle-like teeth. So, so sharp. They have very hard diamond-shaped scales, also ganoid scales, which are more like bone. They're very protective and they have spots. 
They are one of the two largest fish species in North America, second only to the great white sturgeon, which can weigh almost a ton. That's a big fish. Alligator gar are stalking ambush predators who mostly eat fish but won't turn their long noses up at waterfowl or small mammals. Alligator gar used to be known as trash fish, and I couldn't agree more. And it's because conservationists thought they were just killing off other species and not serving any purpose, but we now know that's not the case. And like I said, we actually kind of need them to balance things out. And just like the long nosed gar, Alligator gar can also survive out of water for hours as long as their bodies are kept moist because of their swim bladders. They're even better at breathing oxygen than the smaller guys. They have the same anatomy. They have these swim bladders that basically act as lungs. So if you've ever seen one of those gar roll up to the surface of the river, he's coming up for a big gulp of air. It's so unnerving. And that's where I'm going to leave you for this episode of Kentucky History and Haunts, Ohio River Edition. I know that was a smorgasbord of, of things, but I hope you enjoyed it, maybe learned a thing or two. Stay tuned for a follow-up to this episode. There are things I want to talk about that I just did not get to, like how deadly steamboats were, elephants taking baths, ghosts, obviously, giant snakes, and mud mermaids. Yeah, it's a lot to look forward to. Happy New Year to everybody. Thank you so much for listening all year long. Take care. Until next time.